Welcome to the Open Deeply podcast, where guests open up and dive deep into the vulnerable experiences that shape them. We believe life storytelling has power, the power to heal and inspire others. Your journey towards finding your sexual and personal truth starts now. Here are your hosts, Sunny Megatron and Kate Laurie. Welcome to Open Deeply. I'm Sunny Megatron, and my co-host is Kate Laurie. Now, we're continuing our series on consensual non-monogamy with my amazing co-host, Kate Laurie. And now, while, of course, this episode standing alone will definitely give you insightful information and actionable tips and techniques to help you in your non-monogamous relationships— And even really in your monogamous relationships, because there's some good stuff here. So monogamous folks, stick around. If you really want to dive deep into what we're talking about, make sure you check out episodes 27 and 28, which are part one and two of our series. So part one is the intro to consensual non-monogamy, and part two focuses on compassion. And today in our discussion, we're going to get into attachment injuries, triggers, grounding skills, and Kate's very own epic communication model within non-monogamy. But before we get started, I want to give you a reminder. This podcast is not therapy, nor is it a replacement for therapy. So if during our conversation, you find things that are coming up for you, please practice your own self-care techniques and take care of yourself first. Hi, Kate. Hi. Oh, I'm excited. How's it going? Oh, it's going good. It's going good. So I have a question. Yeah. Do you want me to like, for the new folks that just kind of stumbled upon the podcast, maybe they're here for the first time. Hi. Hello. Welcome. Happy to have you. (laughs) Welcome. Do you want me to give you a little introduction? Do you want to give your own little introduction? How you feeling? Yeah, maybe I can do it myself. Okay. Yeah. So Kate Lurie. I am a sex positive psychotherapist. I've been doing psychotherapy for just short of 20 years. I'm also a a trauma therapist. So a lot of times the populations I work with are non-monogamous folks, kinky folks, LGBTQ, sex workers, porn stars, etc. But I've also been working with trauma this whole time. I recently wrote a book called Open Deeply, and it bridges Everything I know about couples therapy and trauma therapy, it's strange that a lot of times couples therapy and trauma therapy run parallel. And so in my Uh book, I bridged the two. And that's important. And we're going to really talk about why today, because at the end of the day, non-monogamy pokes at our attachment injuries way more than monogamy does. Any unresolved attachment injuries, it can poke at those attachment injuries more just because we we have other lovers involved. And so when I wrote this book, it's designed to really set people up for success so that when your attachment injuries are poked within non-monogamy, you have the skills to be able to ground yourself and your partner. So everything that I am, the 20 years of therapy that I have accumulated, have led to the moment of writing this book and having this episode with you. Yay. Oh, look at that. Look at that. This is destiny. This podcast episode right here is destiny. So yeah, I find it really fascinating and also cognitively perplexing when I think about trauma and attachment injuries and how we bring those into our relationships. It's like, oh, and then I I think, well, that's between two people. Then when we bring in, you know, the other partners and all of that stuff, it's just a ball of like, oh my goodness, what do we do with all of this? So we've talked a little bit about attachment styles and what that is on prior episodes, but just as like a quick recap to get everyone up to speed and new folks who are just joining us, what are attachment styles, attachment injuries. What does that exactly mean? Okay. Well, in part one of this series, we we did talk about attachment styles, you know, so I'm not going to go into that that much. Mm-hmm. You know, the attachment styles, there's basically four of them. I use the Diane Poole-Heller model. Mm-hmm. There's the secure attachment style. And then all the other three are insecure attachment styles, you know, which is the avoidant, the ambivalent, and the disorganized. So, I'm not going to go into describing them again because we we already did that in part one. 
But one thing to know is whatever attachment style you think you might be, you're not set in stone. And just because you had a really traumatic backstory does not mean, for instance, that you're a disorganized style. To me, those four types are just kind of benchmarks to inform you and they shouldn't be put in concrete because let's face it, humanity is way more complex than four types, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But they can kind of give you an idea of how one's backstory may impact how you relate to others. Okay. And so when you have the other three are very much influenced by the attachment injuries that have happened in the past. So when you think about what an attachment injury is, it's anything that's happened in your past. And it doesn't necessarily have to be this huge trauma. It might be that your parents got divorced, or it may be that your dad left without a note when you were six or something like that. Those are attachment injuries where you had some attachment figure, some attachment and something that happened that injured you. Like for instance, if you're in the hospital with an appendicitis and your partner decides to go to the business meeting rather than stick around and be there by your side, that's an attachment injury. Mm -hmm. Right. And so all of those attachment injuries, if they're unresolved and they still can get triggered on some level within us, they will light up the most with our lovers and partners, the people that we're closest to. Yeah. I even think of like, Something as simple as maybe I didn't get emotionally validated, you know, on a repeated basis from my caretaker, parent, et cetera. It could be something as seemingly simple as that that can stick with you. Right. I always like to give this analogy regarding what you're touching on. This is a metaphor. If you imagine a swimming pool that's empty and you backed up a dump truck that's like filled with water and that represents the trauma, you can fill up that swimming pool all at once with that water. And that would be a metaphor for some major trauma, like being in a tour of duty of war, you know, or a gang rape or something like that. Or maybe you were just neglected over your whole childhood. Maybe you were fed, maybe you had a roof over your head, but you just weren't really loved well. And that might be more similar to if you just got a garden hose and put it on low and the swimming pool was filled up drip, drip, drip over time, you've still filled up the swimming pool. (laughs) Ah, I love that analogy. Yeah. You know, those are kind of low T traumas that have accumulated over a life. And so those things for sure can also get triggered. Now, you brought up the fact that sometimes within non-monogamy, You may have several lovers involved. And then, oh, by the way, you know, I might have mentioned this, that for a lot of non-monogamous folks, our love language is that sixth love language, carefree, fun, freedom, and adventure. So the one way that you make a non-monogamous person feel loved is to give them a lot of freedom. And the one way you piss them off is to make them feel controlled. And unfortunately, a lot of times when one partner has self-care needs, For somebody who is really heavily in that love language where they easily feel controlled, when their partner brings up self-care needs, sometimes it can make them feel controlled. If that self-care need gets in the way of something they want to do within non-monogamy. And so I think a lot of what I'm trying to do in the book is help people sort out how can we balance compassion for ourselves and other with that kind of ethic of giving ourselves and others freedom. Yeah. Because let's face it, sometimes what one person needs in terms of compassion and self-care is going to conflict with what one the other person perceives as their freedom. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me of, I, I saw a meme or something somewhere. It was supposed to be funny and it was, but it was like the dark humor because it's really true. It was something like in a relationship, oh no, what happens when my trauma response triggers your trauma response? And then right, you're stuck right. like, oh, now we're both messed up. Yeah, Thanks. which I, yeah. I, you know, I probably talked to you about like the idea of the double trigger. I can't remember mm-hmm. if I talked about that in the last two episodes. But it's literally that moment where both people are traumatized, you know, in an argument. And now at this point, that's what I look for with my couples, because every couple comes in and every couple has a double trigger. So that's like that moment where, like, for instance, 
Let's come up with some names. Taylor and Jan. I don't Taylor know. Taylor and Jan. Okay. So Taylor <laughs> okay. and Jan, they, they come in. And in Taylor's childhood, her dad was an alcoholic and her mother basically told her to take care of her father. And she resented that. She's like, why, you know, why at age 14 am I having to be my dad's parent? And so when she grew up, when she dated somebody, if someone presented as weak, it triggered her. It reminded her of her her weak father. Mm -hmm. So that's Taylor. And then with Jan, Jan was bullied as a child. And so if someone gets really big in their energy, then she starts to cower. And so when they get into a fight, if Taylor starts to get big, Jan may cower. Or if Jan Mm. cowers, Taylor will start to get big. And then it starts to spiral where they're triggering each other's trigger and it spirals up, 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 up. Right. You know, and every couple has that to varying degrees. And some people have many double triggers. Like I try and clear that with EMDR, but not everybody can afford EMDR. But it is helpful to be able to figure out what your double triggers are within a relationship because once you do then you can at least figure out if you can't afford therapy or EMDR, then you can at least find ways to ground yourself and be able to recognize it or maybe take a time out in the relationship when those double triggers happen. Yeah. But we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. <laughs> okay. okay. We're just diving deep into trauma. It's like real life. Okay. <laughs> just go in there. All right. Right. So where should we go for like If we're easing into this, what's next? Let's see. So, you know, if we go back, so we've kind of talked about what attachment injuries are. And I think people in the general public know what a a trigger is. They have a tendency to hear it kind of in layman's terms to a therapist when somebody is triggered. They are in their body having a somatic reaction to a degree that is similar to the original trauma. Like, for instance, if... Mary Jane is at Gelson's and she's in line getting her groceries and all of a sudden she's having a panic attack. She may think she's insane, but she doesn't realize that the person in front of her is wearing Old Spice cologne like the guy who mugged her five years ago was wearing. Right. And so that smell creates a link right to her brain because there's a straight shot through the brain with smell. Mm Mm-hmm. And then that triggers everything. And now she's having a reaction in her body that's almost identical to what she experienced that day when she was mugged. So it's like a cue that takes you back in time. And if you think about it, just on a side note, we can have that same response to positive things, right? Like probably anybody listening can think of that song that comes on the radio that takes them right back to a beautiful moment in their life. So I've heard those described, and I know this isn't like common lingo yet. Maybe it will be. The opposite of a trigger, that positive, is a glimmer. Ah, I haven't heard that. I love that. A glimmer. Yeah, a I like glimmer. that. Yeah. See, we should talk about glimmers more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like as we go along in this episode, we're going to talk about ways to ground yourself and accumulating a list of your glimmers in a little note in your phone or something is a great thing to do because when you are really upset, you're not going to be able to help yourself out as much. So if you have a little note in your phone of glimmers, you can go to your glimmer list and it can help you ground you in a hard time. Yeah. Yeah. I also advise like when I'm teaching BDSM and people have their aftercare after a scene or they have, you know, come across an accidental trigger during their scene. So things are a little emotionally rough after the scene to have those glimmers prepared. Yeah. So if they find themselves in this really dysregulated, ungrounded space, they don't have to think about it. It's just there. Their partner knows what it is and can help them regulate again. So yeah, when I heard the concept of a glimmer, I was like, oh my goodness, that's amazing. Yeah, I love that. I love that. I Mm -hmm. haven't, you're ahead of me on that one. I haven't heard that one. Uh, That's great. Okay, so now we've described what a trigger is. Another thing to think about is, what happens within the body when we get dysregulated, like in a fight or something, like say we're having an uncomfortable conversation within non-monogamy and things are getting heated as they can pretty easily, you know, and and again, this can happen in monogamous relationships, but we're focused on non-monogamy in this conversation. So when we get triggered, we may be in the high, what the trauma resiliency model which comes from TRI, the Trauma Resource Institute, they talk about being in the high zone. So that would be anger or high anxiety, 
panic, all of that, or being in the low zone, which is dissociated, numb, checked out. And then your resilient zone, you may feel a range of emotions, happy, mad, sad, glad. You might even be crying. But at the end of the day, you're grounded in your body. Mm. Yeah. So one thing that I talk about in the book is just how to ground yourself so that you're in your resilient zone. When you're in your high zone or in your low zone, there's changes that happen in the body and the mind that compromise you in many ways. It can compromise your ability to have compassion. Mm -hmm. It can compromise your judgment so that you might say things that you regret the next day. It can compromise your ability to remember. You might be dissociated if you're in the low zone and you may not even remember what was decided upon the next day. Mm -hmm. You know, when you think about being low-key triggered, you know, it's really important if you catch yourself in the high zone or low zone, or if you sense that your partner is in either one of those places, that you take a time out, learn how to ground yourself, learn how to ground your partner. Mm -hmm. But maybe we can hit pause as we talk all of this to, to talk about handling difficult emotions. Okay. Basically, within non-monogamy, of course, you know, there's all these different emotions that can get triggered, you know, jealousy, envy, feeling disempowered, feeling distrustful, insecurity, experiencing loss and abandonment, overwhelm, when things get too fast, too erratic or too hard. All of these different things can happen. So how are you going to handle these difficult emotions? Initially, you want to go through three stages. The first stage is to read your own body mm -hmm. and discover the antecedent. The next stage is going to think of, be thinking about what is your partner's responsibility. And then the third stage is taking action. But if we go back to your responsibility. Mm -hmm. So imagine we're at a, a party. Give me a couple of uh, names again. Ooh, ooh. Steve and Pat. Okay, Steve and Pat. All right. Okay. <laughs> it's like I'm naming kittens. Ooh, I get to name something. <laughs> Steve and Pat, my little kittens at a party. Wait a minute. Okay. Anyway, keep going. <laughs> All right. So Steve, Steve and Pat, they're at a play party. So Steve has been flirting with this other person all night. And Pat is getting a little tweaked by that. And it's also Pat's birthday. Oh, happy birthday, Pat. Yeah, I know. Happy <laughs> birthday, Pat. So Steve just keeps flirting with this other person and Pat is just getting all kinds of dysregulated. And Pat continues to bear through the party. Steve has no idea that Pat is pissed. And then on the way home, they have this huge argument. Mm -hmm. The next day when Pat wakes up, Pat is able to just track their body and get in touch with what's going on within their body. And at first... Pat thinks about, well, what is my responsibility in this? And so Pat gets in touch with what's going on in their body. Maybe the heart is racing, their face is hot, et cetera, and so on. Maybe they feel clenched in their body. Mm -hmm. And the emotions are kind of feeling abandoned, sad, insecure. The thought might be, I'm not good enough. Right. And once they're connected to all of that, Pat can bridge back. And this isn't bridging back to something that's similar in story necessarily. It's bridging back to something that's somatically in the body and emotionally similar. So when you bridge back, if Pat is truly connected, something will just pop up without Pat having to think very hard. And Pat goes back to a memory of being at like at this gas station. Her family's supposed to be going to Disneyland. And the family ends up leaving Pat at the gas station and, and pulling off because they're laughing so hard at something Pat's sister said. And this had happened many, many times. So Pat had this whole history of feeling abandoned, not good enough, etc. And that was getting triggered that night with Steve and this other person. Right. So at that moment, Pat realizes that's that's Pat's responsibility. You know, that's Pat's piece. Pat needs to work on that. That's getting triggered. And Pat may need to work through that through therapy, you know, EMDR, meditation, mindfulness, you know, whatever means helps them work through those past injuries. Right. And then the second piece is switching to Steve and then asking, Pat needs to ask them, does Steve have any responsibility in this? Okay, Steve knew it was their birthday, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe, you know, Steve could have done better at being more balanced between the two people, more considerate, 
more considerate that it was Pat's birthday, etc. And so at that point, Pat may have a conversation with Steve using the epic communication model Mm. that we will talk about soon. Right. These are the first steps when you're handling a difficult emotion. So at this point, we could talk about some of the different difficult emotions that you might feel. Yeah, let's go for it. And the one I'm thinking of is like jealousy, right? Like jealousy, abandon. God, there's so many. I feel bad for Pat. I know. <laughs> Poor Pat. It's Pat, Pat's it's freaking your birthday. birthday. I know. God. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and guess what? Steve felt really controlled for a little while there, but they're going to work it out. So with jealousy, you know, this is part of the package is, you know, so in this example, Pat could have been described as feeling jealous. So this would be the initial work that Pat would do in this example, right? Is like delineating what their responsibility was, what Steve's responsibility is. These are the first stages. Now with jealousy, it's a complex emotion. So to me, the first thing you do is you unpack the jealousy suitcase. When I have a client come into my office and they're like, I'm so jealous or what have you. That's the first thing I do is like, tell me about your jealousy. What is inside of it? Because inside of that jealousy, that complex emotion can be sadness, a fear of loss, rage, all kinds of different emotions. So when you unpack it, then you know how to work with it. But I found that one, not only is it a complex emotion, but a lot of times people mislabel, they're actually experiencing a completely different emotion than jealousy, but they call it jealousy. Right, right. I've heard even some people, you know, and it depends on who you talk to, people have different points of view. And there's not really one right point of view. But like, some people even say like, jealousy really isn't an emotion in and of itself. It's just like a an umbrella emotional term that has other more granular emotions packed into it. Right. And it's interesting. It's like, there's so many things that can get us to a point of feeling impotent. If we just use the word jealousy alone. I mean, I've seen if you don't unpack it, people can end up not getting their needs met or feeling lost. Mm -hmm. Because, yeah, because I could just see if someone says jealousy to me, I can interpret that as you feel, I don't know, angry and enraged. And maybe the person saying jealousy actually means they feel like diminished and small and sad and something completely different. And I could see how that would just start us out on a whole like miscommunication right there. Yeah. Yeah. That's one reason it can make someone feel lost. Another thing I see in my practice is when someone says, you're just being jealous, you know, you can't even do this. Why are we even trying to be non-monogamous? They start catastrophizing. The person being accused of being jealous a lot of times just collapses. Mm. Like they go into a shame spiral or I don't even know if it's a shame. They just collapse a lot of times. That's the last thing they want to be. Because again, probably because freedom is part of our love language, for a lot of people, the last thing they want to come off as is jealous and controlling It feels like failure. It really does. Like rather than admitting and being vulnerable and saying like, hey, I know they're not ideal if we're trying to be the perfect, you know, consensually non-monogamous couple. But guess what? We're human. And this is what I'm feeling. And I think just the shame of being able to admit that you're feeling something that isn't like keeping up with the polyamorous Joneses and how you think you should be, that that in and of itself just, I can see why, yeah, you'd go into a shame spiral and completely collapse. Yeah. Which is a shame. It shouldn't be that way. So those listening, feel your feelings. Don't be ashamed. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Another thing that was pointed out when I was just researching for the book is they were pointing, I can't remember who, who the researcher was. I'm sure I referenced it in the book. They talked about how a lot of times people don't want to admit they are jealous because if they do, it quote unquote lowers their mate value. Like if I admit I'm jealous of her, then I'm admitting that I think she is superior to me. And then if I have a partner that's not as evolved, they might be kind of like, yeah, you're right. She is better than you. That kind of fear. Mm, Yeah. You know. Interesting. And so a lot of times people don't even admit it. So for all of these reasons. 
Anyway, so with jealousy, we already talked about some of the first steps. We'll talk more about how to handle jealousy as we go along, but I just want to touch on some of the other difficult feelings. So this is one of the ones that gets confused with jealousy is envy. So envy is not so much that you're worried of, you know, losing your partner or something. It can be just you want what that person has. Like, you know, in the book, I give the example of, you know, my partner at the time had this girlfriend with just these glorious huge boobs that she had gotten down in Mexico. They were like one of the most beautiful boob jobs I've ever seen in my life. And I've seen a lot because my ex-husband was an erotic photographer. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they were just amazing. And I was very envious of those boobs. You know, I fantasize. I wish I had, you know, like Velcro boobs where I could like take off these boobs and put on those those big boobs. I would love that. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Yes. (laughs) Like just be able to change out your boobs, you know, whenever you, you know, if you were going to play tennis and you take off the big ones and you put on the tiny ones, you know, that kind of thing. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Yes. One day in the future, in the year 3000, we'll have Velcro boobs. Yeah, (laughs) just trade them out. Trade them out. Exactly. Right? But, you know, it's like envy can get also really hard. Like, for instance, like, what if you've had a mastectomy? I mean, sticking with the whole boob thing. What if you've had a mastectomy and your partner still has this other partner with glorious boobs? And maybe you weren't envious before, but now you are. Right. Because now you've had this mastectomy, you know, so it's not always this easy thing to manage. Right, right. I think when it's a light thing, like, for instance, you're actually envious, your partner comes back from a threesome and and you're pissy. And at first you're like, am I jealous? But then you're realizing, no, I'm just envious. I'd like to have three people on a bed with me too, you know, two other people on the bed with me too. See, I'm envisioning that's what Pat's feeling in my fictitious like scenario in my mind. Pat at that party saw Steve having a great time getting it on and was like, but it's my birthday. I deserve to be having the cool threesome in the corner that everybody's, you know, watching and cheering out. Like, why don't I get that? So in my mind, that's what's going on. Yeah. And that may be true, right? I mean, it may not be that Pat fears that Steve is going to go off with this other partner and leave, which would sound more like jealousy. Maybe that Pat is just envious of that amount of attention and wants that that attention themselves. Yeah. And I can see, though, without really digging down and dissecting what's going on and developing specific language for your feelings, how those are two completely different scenarios that we have come up with for why Pat is pissy. Right. I like the alliteration there. (laughs) But if Pat doesn't have the emotional wherewithal or the words to describe what's going on, then Steve is interpreting that pissiness any way he wants and nobody's getting anywhere. Which happens all the fucking time. Yeah. You know, and and a lot of times in my office, a lot of times Steve is catastrophizing. Like I said, going, we can't even do this. Look, we all we did was go to a play party. We didn't even we didn't even have sex with anybody, and you're losing your mind. Yeah, you know, yeah, that kind of thing. Also, if Pat were me, or if I were Pat, because I'm having some kind of affinity with fake Pat here, <laughs> that sometimes. The emotion is so much like, you know, you're feeling a thing, you know, you're pissed off. But maybe if I'm Pat, I'm like, I am feeling feelings and I don't know why. Yeah. I don't even know. Is it because I feel abandoned and ignored? Is it because I feel envious because Steve's having a better time than I am, but it's my birthday? I don't even know. I'm just feeling big things, you know? Yeah. Right, right. And Steve might get frustrated with that. Mm -hmm. And so I I think with two couples, if they start to understand how the process works within the human psyche, they might start to have patience for each other and give each other more space to like figure it out. And maybe with Pat, you know, like if I could teach her to track her body and her emotions and not just make a logical decision, but really try and like listen to her body and her emotions to their emotions, then Pat may get to a place where some insights pop up from being connected to their body and their emotions that might not pop up if they just stayed in their head. Mm -hmm. 
depending on how Pat is wired. You know, you and I talk about neurodiversity. If Pat has neurodiversity, the path might be a little bit different. Exactly. Yeah. That's a whole nother layer when you like expect your partner's emotional response to work like yours and they're just wired a little differently and nobody's wrong and nobody's right. They're just different. I think we all are guilty of assuming, well, if I were in that situation, I would act like this and that and this and I would think like this. So why aren't you? And that's another failure of just us being humans. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And right now we're doing a non-monogamy series, but we in the future we're going to do at least one episode, if not a series, on love having to do with neurodiversity. Right. So that day will come. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, with envy, sometimes it may mean reinventing yourself, right? Like if we go to the example of the gal that had the mastectomy, maybe before when she had her boobs, you know, she was the type that had a lot of lovers and she loved riding on top with her bouncy boobs and all of that. And maybe after the mastectomy, maybe it changes her whole way of relating. Maybe she decides to have one lover that really sees her courage. And maybe she, she gets a glorious tattoo across her where her mastectomy is. And, and, you know, her new lover just sees that tattoo and the scars as a testimony to her courage, you know. And so maybe she reinvents herself in that way. And so now that what once was envy the envy kind of dissipates and instead what's built is a reinvention of the self, Mm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. A third one that comes up a lot is, is feeling disempowered, which, you know, any of these can be commingled with something else. So maybe we feel disempowered and we feel envious at the same time or jealous at the same time. But, you know, a lot of times in non-monogamy, if, say we have more than one partner and maybe our partner or partners are paying attention to other people more than us, or maybe our partner or partners are looking at their other lovers as say the sexual ones. And somehow we've gotten desexualized. We've been put into some role that we don't dig that we did not sign up for like the responsible one. And we feel really disempowered by that, Mm -hmm. you know, and that happens within non-monogamy a lot. You know, so I think some of the things you can do is assert yourself and and assess the role. Like, ask yourself, do I like the roles that have manifested within our non-monogamous relationship? And like, how can I, how can I be my own superhero? You know what I mean? Right. Like, how can I create the role that I want to be in? You know, if you have a caring partner, not all of us do, but if we have a caring partner or partners that can hear that we don't like the role that we've been organically shifted into, then work can be done to shift that, Mm -hmm. which is a whole conversation, you know, whether it's purposely creating a sexy night where you step into your goddess or God self and you let go of your mom's sweatpants and all of that. And your partner encourages that and allows you to reestablish your sexual god or goddess self, you know? Mm-hmm. But sometimes it really takes all people, all parties involved getting on board with that. And it can be hard because you may have kids and a million responsibilities that have shoved you into that responsible role and stepping out of it can be really fucking hard. Yeah. And like another thing with people who are non-monogamous, you know, when I think of If you're a parent and you're juggling kids and, you know, you have a job, maybe you're caretaking for an elderly relative, you know, whatever it is, you have all these life things Mm -hmm. and you're already starved for time. And then you have multiple partners taking up even more time. Like that's a lot to juggle. Yeah. And that might be going on with Pat too. Maybe the reason Steve is paying attention to this other lover is something like that, that Pat has gotten shoved into the responsible one in their relationship. And he's seen anyone who's new as this sparkly, you know, sexual experience, Mm -hmm. you know, and maybe Pat's like, oh, no, it's going to happen again, where I'm like, I'm feeling like the boring one, you know, right. Another thing that I see sometimes helping when you feel disempowered, and this isn't like a tit for tat thing, like, oh, well, fuck you, I'm going to do this to spite you. But I mean, sometimes taking on another lover yourself, if you don't have one, can help. Like if you're feeling disempowered, sometimes 
taking on a new lover that really sees you and, and can connect with you can give you that breath of fresh air that is helpful. Right. But making sure to do it in a way where you're not even like subconsciously doing it to like jab one back at you. Look at how much fun I'm having over here. More fun than you had on Saturday night. <laughs> like right. you don't want to do that either. And it's like, we're humans. And that is our default to like, get back. Like to you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. Like that is, even though we know logically, like we shouldn't do that. Left to our own devices when we're not thinking things out and we're very emotionally driven. That's exactly what we do. I'm going to hurt you back. Ah, ha, ha, ha. Exactly. So to have that wherewithal and that, I don't know, forethought to make sure that you're not just slippery sloping into that, that's a whole nother complication. Oh, I know. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like, even if you do decide to take a another lover and that revitalizes you, doesn't mean that you don't still have the hard work of talking to whatever partners you feel disempowered by and figuring out how to fix that, you know, that other relationship. That work still needs to be done. This just might make the whole situation a little bit less painful. Right. So, you know, and we don't necessarily have to go into all of these difficult feelings. Let's see. So, you know, I've talked about a few of them. There's also feeling distrustful, insecurity, loss and abandonment, and overwhelm. Is there any that if you were to like pick one, is there one that stands out to you? Insecurity for a couple of different reasons. One, I think that kind of plagues us all, the insecurity, but I think our egos or I don't know if it's ego or like our tendency to sort of lie to ourselves or not really get in touch with what we're really feeling Mm -hmm. makes us feel when we're in it like, well, I'm not insecure, but we totally are. We just either don't realize it or don't want to admit it. Or like with the jealousy thing, we think it's shameful. So we're like, no, no, I'm not. No, no, no. Of course I'm not insecure. But that is what drives so much stuff. So let's talk about insecurity. With insecurity, let's think about how insecurity can sometimes show up. We might see someone else and go, oh, they're so much smarter than me, or they have a bigger dick than me, or they're taller than me. If it's something that we can actually improve upon, like say one of them might be, oh, they are more fit than me or whatever. It could be an inspiration that actually makes us decide to go to the gym or, you know, if somebody's uh, a better singer, maybe we decide to take some singing lessons. I don't know. If it's something that's within reason, it might inspire us. Right. If we're insecure about something that we can't change, like I wish I was taller then at that point, like some kind of reframing of our cognition might be in order where we might be like, okay, well, my IQ isn't as high as theirs, but my creativity is through the roof. Or I may not be as zen as this person and it's cool and collected, but my spazzy, happy energy is the reason that I'm a great kindergarten teacher, that kind of thing. And I think if we're feeling insecure about one of our partners doing things with other partners, sometimes we can create relationship reconnection rituals. One thing that I teach my couples to do, like the folks that are living together, is whoever is the last to come home, you know, go ahead and go to the bathroom, change your clothes, but like within a couple of minutes, come back and have some kind of reconnection ritual. The one thing it's not is, well, how is your day? Because that just takes you back into whatever shitty thing happened at the office, right? This is about connecting. So a lot of times it's nonverbal. It's some some kind of physical thing. It might be a hug or holding each other's faces or saying some kind of gratitude. I'm, I'm so happy that I have you because you always make me smile. It's like something that feels good, mm-hmm. mind, body, and spirit, you know, that helps you feel reconnected to each other. And that can really reduce insecurities. And then last, I'd I'd just say that making sure that you have a safety net of resources. So part of your safety net are the glimmers, you know, it's it's the things that make you feel good. So 
if one person falls away, you still have this whole safety net of people, animals, things that you do, beliefs you have about yourself that help you feel secure and grounded. Yeah. And what about like the bigger insecurities? I think of like the insecurities that really touch on your feeling of like your core value as a human. So I see this like in gender related things. There might be somebody who's like, oh, does this mean like I'm not man enough for or that I'm not worthy enough for in some way, shape or form, you know, whatever that is. Or are now we getting into like some more like serious trauma and attachment stuff that's like a whole nother ball of wax and self-work. Well, it's interesting when you say, I'm glad you said that. I'm not man enough. Yeah, because I see that a lot with like cis straight men and they have their masculinity threatened. That insecurity comes and it's always like, no, I'm not insecure. But really, that's exactly what's happening. So what do we do about that? Well, that's systemic, isn't it? Yeah. Like that kind of Mm self-hatred is systemic. So I think it's not just looking at your own backstory and and what maybe male figures or or even women have taught to you about what it is to be a man. It's also looking at it from a sociological societal level as well, right? So you're getting negative messages potentially left, right, and center. And so you have to really deconstruct that. And I think not just maybe doing therapy or, you know, meditation or what have you, but also really reading a lot listening to podcasts like the man enough podcast that can help people think things through like now there's more and more literally you know th- things that you can access to help you really look at what it is to be a man from a fresh lens yeah that's a huge journey just like it is for any gender i think these days so many of us are asking like what does my gender mean? Right. And how do I want to show up? And if you don't even know, then that's kind of the essence of insecurity, isn't it? Like you're not secure in who you are related to gender. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot. And I mean, we can translate that to so many larger societally influenced identities or identity identifiers or characteristics that people feel real insecure about. And yeah, it's bigger than just that situation, than just you, than, you know, it's what have we been conditioned to learn in the system that we live in. So that's not even a whole nother podcast episode. I think that's just a whole nother podcast. <laughs> right. Yes. It's a lot. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And luckily there's a lot of podcasts doing that work and it's amazing. The rest of what we have to cover today, I could talk about for a long, long time, but I think I'm just going to nutshell it. Okay. Basically. So once you figure out the uncomfortable feelings, once you sort out what your responsibility is and what your partner is, then you can be moving into using my communication model, the epic communication model. And as I briefly talked about in part one of this non-monogamous series, the E is the emotional piece, the P in epic is the physical piece, the I is the intellectual piece, the C is compassion and action. And the P runs all the way through it. The P is before you get going, it's in the middle, and it closes as well, right? That is the grounding piece. Because again, in non-monogamous conversations, a lot of times attachment injuries are getting poked. And so we need to really be grounding ourselves all the way through it. We've got these beautiful communication models like Imago Dialogue and nonviolent communication. But if we're dysregulated then a lot of those communication models aren't going to work so well for us because of everything I said at the beginning of this episode, that it causes all kinds of changes that compromise compassion and judgment and memory and all of that. And so the P in Epic is crucial. And that's the part that people a lot of times are not doing, even folks that have some kind of communication model that they're using. Mm-hmm. So what does it look like to do it? Like what things? So, you know, let's imagine that Steve and Pat actually know this model. Maybe it's the next day and they've kind of calmed down a bit. 
because it's never too late to use it, right? Let's face it. Sometimes we're just going to blow up at each other and that's being human. Or an Aries, but that's a whole nother <laughs> podcast. Anyway. <laughs> oh my God. I'm such an Aries magnet. It's funny you said that. Oh Lord. I can relate to that. So let's imagine Steve knows this model. So the next morning when they're eating, maybe they just got breakfast and everything and they're, they're calmed down. And Steve is like, let's go through this again. I can see you tensing up from the get-go. Before we really talk this through, is there anything I can do to help you feel held and grounded in your body? And maybe Pat is like, you know, it'd be great if we could just crawl on the bed and can you be the big spoon? He's like, sure, yeah. And so now they're like, they're in the little spoon position on the bed. And just that position can make a person feel held and maybe even a little small in a good way. So then Steve might say, so now we're switching from the P, the physical, to the E. Steve might say, so tell me what you were feeling last night. I was feeling left, alone, sad. I didn't feel like I was good enough. I was feeling anxious. I felt like I was going to cry. And so Steve would just mirror that back. This is the piece that's very inspired by the Imago dialogue, right? You know, so he's just mirroring back and empathizing with what Pat was experiencing. You know, I'm hearing that you felt sad and this and that. Is there anything else? And maybe Pat says, and I I was also disappointed in you because you knew it was my birthday. And usually you're way sweeter than that. So he just pulls out all the emotional language mm-hmm. until Pat really feels seen. Do you feel like I'm getting how you're feeling? Yes. And at that moment, he might switch back to P and just say, how are you doing inside? I'm feeling pretty good, but can you pet my head while we're talking? So now he's spooning her and spooning them and, and patting their head. Mm-hmm. And at that point, he moves on to I and I is the intellectual piece, the validating piece. And he might say to Pat, I intellectually understand why that was hard for you because it was your birthday. And I know that you love your birthday. It's your favorite day of the year. And you like to feel like the star on your birthday. Is there anything else? And maybe Pat says, no, that, that's it. That's my birthday is everything to me. Yeah. Again, he might be like, do you feel like I'm getting why you were so upset. Yes. So at that point, he might move into the compassion and action piece, the C in Epic. Is there anything that I can do in the future to do better? Yeah, when we get to a party, can you just hang out with me for the first 30 minutes? Or can you check in on me? Or whatever Pat's asks are, right? Mm-hmm. And if he feels like he can do that, then then we're reaching a conclusion, right? For the part that's Pat's side of it. And at that point, Steve might say, is there anything else that you need physically to just wrap this up? Yeah, I can. I just want to flip over and I just want to hug. Maybe they hug each other. So the P is run all the way through this. Now, at the end of this, we don't have enough time in this episode, but at that point, the talking stick may pass to Steve because Steve may have some things to say as well. And that's tricky, right? Because when you pass that talking stick, Steve has to be careful because while he's expressing everything on his end, he may undo all the good work he just did. So you have to be really careful when that talking stick is passed, but it is possible. That's interesting that you bring that up. And I think this is a good cliffhanger for next time, because when you were going through that scenario, I suddenly flipped from like being Pat to being Steve. And when Pat said to Steve, to me, because I'm now Steve, I was disappointed in you last night. I felt abandoned or whatever. That emotional knee jerk reaction to be like, oh. To then now my ego is bruised. Oh my God, I disappointed you. It's not what I intended to do. And now I'm being accused of being inattentive or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So like if I'm Steve and like I have a hard time controlling that emotional outburst, I'm either going to want to blurt out, but wait a minute, I wasn't ignoring you. I was doing like, I have a reason that made sense in my head and I'm going to start to want to defend myself. Or if I've practiced the epic communication model and I'm 
I'm like, gonna wait for this talking stick to be pinned. Shut up, <laughs> shut up, Steve. Don't say it. Let Pat talk. And then I get the walking stick or the talking stick. Whatever. I'm gonna be walking because Pat's gonna kick me out of the bed. <laughs> but like, I'm gonna blurt all that out. Like, oh, I wasn't, I, I can't, don't be disappointed in me. I wasn't trying to. What I meant was blah, blah, blah. And now, you know, boom. So that's a good cliffhanger. <laughs> yeah. And the thing and is, we- people can do it. Even if you do part of this, it's better right. than just like lawyering up and like fighting like two lawyers that are trying to win. It's like even if you do a little bit of this, it's better. Right. But I've seen couples like full tilt be able to do this. Oh, wow. Those couples. I aspire to be them. And maybe... Maybe by next episode, I'll practice my epic communication. And I will be one of those like amazing or half of the amazing couples. I'm not two people. I am. I'm Pat and Steve. Anyway, on that note, listening along, you know, if you're Pat, if you're Steve, just like me, maybe you're both, please hit the subscribe button. So you can be sure not to miss our next episode in this series on consensual non-monogamy. And until then, we're all going to be practicing our epic communication skills. And we will see you in our next episode when we once again dare to open deeply. Thank you for listening. Find us online at opendeeplypodcast.com and on social media at Kate Marie or at Sunny Megatron. Check back bi-weekly for new episodes, and until next time, remember, your authentic truth is only found when you dare to open deeply. Intro and outro voice by the queen goddess, Frenchie Davis. Intro and outro music by the Baltimore Bull, Rob Burrell.